I think good friends a little bit of a stretch, but <laughs> acquaintances. We're, we work together. Okay. Hey, uh, I'm glad to be here with you. It is uh, it is a joy. It's really the joy is all on this side of the whatever this thing's called pulpit, uh, because uh, I don't get to come over here very much, um, and so any chance that I get to, I, I love to kind of cross the river and come see what's going on. Um, and so it's, it's a joy for me to be here for sure, uh, because here's the thing. 12 South thinks they're cool. East Nashville knows it's cool, right? That's the difference. It's like, oh, yeah, you try real hard with your funny-looking hats you wear over there. But cool is all on this side of the river. So it is, thanks for letting me crash. Thanks for letting uh, me into your little party that you guys have going over here. Uh, as Brent said, I've been on staff uh, with Midtown for a couple years, uh, and it is, this is probably my favorite part, getting to see other congregations and, and spend time with them. And uh, we also share sermon series. And so uh, we've been in this series for the last couple weeks, uh, inviting you guys to be curious with us, uh, really to come along with us and see uh, who Jesus is. Uh, what, is what does scripture say about him? Uh, what, how did he interact with the poor? How did he interact with the rich? How did he interact with women? How did he interact uh, with the religious elites? Uh, what, how did Jesus move and act and be in his time that he spent on earth ministering uh, to his people, and uh, we've asked you and invited you uh, to be curious with us, uh, to have a curiosity about who Jesus is. Uh, it's easy to make up our mind about who he was, easy to make up our mind about what we think he would do, uh, but we often find that Jesus uh, really doesn't act uh, the way that we expect him to do so. And this morning we come to the passage of uh, the woman at the well, this curious case of this woman at the well. We don't know her name. Um, scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, but she was there, and she was thirsty, uh, and so was Jesus. And so they run into each other. And so before we jump into the sermon, I would love for Savannah. I was going to say my friend Savannah, but that wouldn't be correct. I've never met her. I'm going to ask Savannah uh, to come to the front. Am I in your way? Okay. On. Great. Okay. Awesome. Okay, John 4, 3 through 29. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, would ask or a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will wor- you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Thank you, Savannah. You're really good at reading scripture. You want to come to 12 South? We'll talk after. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we are uh, undone really by this passage. Uh, We we don't know what you're doing. Uh, We don't know why we feel so much shame. Uh, Maybe we know exactly why we feel so much shame. Um, But Lord, we certainly do not understand why you want to be present with us in that. Uh, Lord, so as we spend the next few minutes together um, daring (laughs) to unpack this passage, um, Lord, feeling like we need to have crash helmets on as we read something like this, something so heavy and powerful and good. Uh, Lord, would you be with us? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you come uh, invade our hearts, uh, move us uh, to the throne of grace uh, where we can meet Jesus there? Uh, behold his face and see him uh, as beautiful. And it's his name we do pray. Amen. Well, as Savannah read for us uh, so well, we are in this passage, woman at the well, Jesus has this interaction. Uh, we're going to see three things really out of this passage this morning. We're going to see uh, the depth of desire that this lady had. We're going to see the depth of shame uh, and then the depth of freedom. So desire, shame, and freedom. So let's dive in with what the Lord has uh, with uh, looking at verse, start with verse three here in John chapter four. Uh, John the disciple is giving us a peek really into the daily life of Jesus here. Uh, and Jesus and his boys, they have been on a baptism frenzy. Uh, they've been splashing water on anybody that wants it. They've been going all over the place, baptizing folks. And uh, they have started to out baptize John the Baptist. It was in his name, which is really embarrassing for him. Uh, they've been starting to out-baptize John the Baptist, and the Jews uh, didn't like this. Uh, so Jesus is in a bit of a kind of a PR nightmare here, and so he asks his uh, guys to kind of slow that down. Hey, we're going to leave this area. We're going to leave Judea. We're going to head back to Galilee, and to get there, uh, they had to go through Samaria. And even that sentence, uh, it's important to note here, 
that John, as he's writing this, is being quite uh, deliberate in saying that they had to go to Samaria because this was not a voyage that any self-respecting Jew would have made. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, right? He's a king of them. Um, and if he was a good Jew, he would not have gone through Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. Went both ways. Uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Um, they didn't like each other. The Jews saw them as sellouts. The Jews saw them as half-breeds. They saw them as those who turned their backs on the covenants that God had established in the Old Testament uh, as, as lawbreakers um, because they had, uh, when the Assyrian armies had invaded uh, the, the, the folks who were living in the Samaritan region, who were Jews originally, had started to intermingle with uh, the invading armies that came. And now they've sort of um, become a, a whole new race of folks. And the Jews were very upset about this. Uh, and so they hated Samaria so much that they wouldn't even walk through it. Uh, they would choose to go the long way around. Um, and so John is writing this in here for us to see that Jesus is about to do something that no Jew would have done. Um, and so Jesus takes this walk into Samaria with his disciples. The disciples go into town to get food. Um, Jesus is thirsty. Jesus wants a LaCroix. Jesus goes to the well um, because that's where he got water. Um, and so it's about, it, John tells us it's a sixth hour, which would have been noon. They start their day at six o'clock. Not like me. Started a couple hours later than that. Um, but they start their day uh, at six. So the sixth hour would have been noon. So it would have been hot. Uh, it would have been real hot. Uh, and Jesus would have been real thirsty. And so he gets there. And um, John tells us that as Jesus approaches the well, there's a woman there. A Samaritan woman which doesn't sound like a big deal to us. Yeah, people are at places all the time. Why is that so weird, John? Um, but there's a Samaritan woman, and she's at the well, and he's telling this story, and every Jew that would have been reading this would have wondered, what is Jesus going to do next? Is he going to push her into the well? Is he going to just give her a swirly, like just hold her head down for a little bit and pull it back out? He's going to approach this woman at the well because not only is she a Samaritan, she's a Samaritan woman, which in their day meant she was not even a second-class citizen. She would have been third or fourth class. Uh, so how is the king of the Jews going to interact with uh, a woman who is seemingly the dregs of the society? How will he respond? Will he condemn her? Will he talk to her? Will he just ignore her? And as always, Jesus doesn't do what everyone else assumes that he will do. Instead, he asks her a question. Can I get some of that water? Hey, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? A reasonable question to ask when you're at a well. Uh, but this is thick with scandal and with controversy. And here's the thing. The Samaritan woman already knows this. Her response to the question isn't sure. Here's a cup. Her response is, what are you talking to me for? You're a Jew, which means you're probably racist. Which also means you're probably sexist because I'm a woman. So what do you, a Jew, have to do with a Samaritan woman? Jesus, don't you know about stranger danger? Why are you talking to me uh, here? She doesn't know this Jesus yet, but Jesus does something toward this woman that's likely never been done to her before. Jesus draws out her desire. 
we know the story. We just had Savannah just read it for us. This lady has it rough. People have taken advantage of her desires. But here's Jesus who is drawing out her desire, who's calling onto her beauty. And for this lady, she has desired nothing more than some water. Than to not have to come to this daggum well in the middle of the day when it's super hot uh, and by myself. She wanted water from a well that never gets tapped out. She's talking about literal water. That's what she thinks Jesus is talking about. Um, and he's here looking at this woman. He's honoring the image of God in her because there was a reason that she was going to this well alone. We don't know that yet, right, in this context of the story. But Jesus knew there was a reason that this woman went to the well alone. Because there's a reputation that surrounded women who went to the well alone. If she goes to the well alone, that means that nobody else wanted to go with her. And if she's there in the hottest part of the day, that means that she doesn't want to be around the folks who are going to the well at the common time, which is in the morning. This meant that she was immoral. Only immoral women would go to the well at the hottest part of the day. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus said, instead of condemning her, instead of pushing her into the well, Here's Jesus who's going to put her in the path of oncoming beauty, the likes of which she has always longed for but never has experienced. And doesn't Jesus, doesn't Jesus always do this? When we look at Jesus, when we look at Christ's interaction all throughout Scripture, when we look, we, a couple weeks ago, uh, we preached of the man who was paralyzed and had his friends bring him to uh, Jesus as he was teaching in his house. Um, and Jesus sought to heal his heart while he also healed his legs. Think of the blind men who would come to Jesus. Think of the woman who was bleeding. Think of the Roman centurion's daughter who was dying. Think of Jesus and his own friend Lazarus who died. Or think of Peter, his disciple, his, one of his closest followers. That Jesus is always in the business of resurrecting our desires. He resurrects our true desires. Because all these folks that were coming to Jesus, all the folks that I just mentioned, all the types of folks, thought they were coming for one reason and found out they were actually there for another reason. Think of the guy who uh, was, he was trying to get into the pool because like, the, he thought the angels came down and like, started up, and if he could get into the pool, uh, then he'd be healed, this lame man. And Jesus walks up to him and he says, hey, do you want to be well? I've been reading this story for 20-some years. It's always a weird question, Jesus. Of course he wants to be well. Jesus, are you sniffing markers? Naturally, like, of course this guy wants to be well. But Jesus is asking, what do you really want? Jesus is asking you this morning, what do you really want? You're here. It's a daylight savings time. You could have been in bed and had a great excuse for it. But you're here. So we have to ask the question, what do we really want? What does your heart really desire? Do you really just want well-adjusted kids? Uh, do you really just want to live in the cool part of town? Do you really want just enough money uh, that you can make it by? Um, do you really just want cool spots to eat that aren't Applebee's? What do we really want? What are we truly desiring as we come to Jesus? What does this lady really want? How has your career or your parenting or your food, or your technology, or your romance, how have those things become a religion for you? And how can beholding what Jesus is offering to this lady come in 
like a sledgehammer of mercy and grace and, and, and really shatter the fragile glass house that we've built. How could what we desire really be what this lady desired? Not just water, but for someone to talk to her. For someone to ask her a question. For someone who would see her and not run away. For someone who would see her and not snicker. For someone who would see her and not whisper that she was a homewrecker. She wanted somebody to see her and sit with her and ask her a question. That's what we want, to be seen and known and ask questions. We want folks to be curious about our life. And for this woman and for us, how much more do we want that person to be God himself? How much more do we want that person to be the God of the universe who controls what time the sun comes up and controls what kind of grass the cows eat? How can this God who controls all this stuff be interested in me? Could he really be who he says he is? And Jesus looks at us, surrounded by the fast food wrappers of all our failed idols, and says to you, I know the secret that's been hidden from the ages, and I know all the promises that your idols have given you, and I know that you failed them and that they failed you. For this lady, we know she runs to guys. We know that she runs to water. She's running to her own questions. This lady has so many things that she thinks she wants, and Jesus is coming in, and he's standing in front of her, and he's telling her, what if we could stop drinking the diaper-infested water of this world and start drinking the water that comes from the river that flows right through the heart of heaven? What if that was the water that was coming to us? Would you drink it? Would you be like this woman? Would you ask, hey, give me some of that water? Would you drink it, or has your shame collapsed any desire that you've ever had? I don't know you. But I know people, and I know myself. You answered yes to both of those questions. You want it, and your shame has collapsed any of your desires. So what's happened to this lady? Shame has come in and collapsed any of her desires because while the depth of our desire awakens within, within us possibility and hope and renewal and a way of seeing the world through a gospel lens that changes how we see our neighbors and changes how we see our town, changes how we see Ourself, we know that when that desire awakens, and when that desire starts to roar, and when that desire starts to move around, shame comes in like Tanya Harding and takes a lead pipe to the Nancy Kerrigan knees of our desires and drops us like a rock. Because it's that powerful. While desire runs deep, shame runs so much deeper. And Jesus deals with our desires, but he has to also deal with our shame. This is going to bring us to our second point, the depth of our shame. We're going to see this in the life of the Samaritan woman. This lady shows her desire for this water that will never stop flowing. She loves this idea that she'll never be thirsty again. Man, I don't know who you are, stranger, but give me some of that water because I don't want to come back here anymore. I don't want to keep coming back to this gossip pit. I don't want to keep coming back here when it's super hot. And she responds to his offer, and Jesus says, great, great. You can have some of this living water. Just go get your husband and then come back here. And the heart that just dropped in you when you heard that. Imagine if you're this lady. 
Ah, good grief. He just offered me this. And now he told me to go get my husband. Sir, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds, oh, you're right that you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and now you're shacking up with some cat, and he's not even your husband. It's like, Jesus, are you rubbing her face in this? Like, is she like a newborn puppy that just went on the carpet, and you're like rubbing her face in it? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus ask that question? Because I'd be mortified, and you'd be mortified. Think to yourself, this is a fun exercise, think to yourself of your place of deepest shame. Think of that place, and think if we threw that on this screen, what would you do? Because that's what happened to this lady. You'd want to go throw yourself off a building, and Jesus says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Jesus, what are you up to? Why are you asking her this question? It's hot and she's thirsty. Just give her some water. Why are you roasting her about her love life? English poet Francis Thompson refers to God as the great hound of heaven. This is what God is doing here. Jesus is a bloodhound and he is sniffing out the places of her heart that she is keeping hidden. And Jesus sniffs out the places of your heart that you keep hidden and you hate him for it. Because you have locked doors in your heart and Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to jiggle all these doorknobs till they open up. That when you give your life to me, when we trust Jesus with who we are, that means he has access to all these places in our heart. So what do you do when this happens? What do you do when this happens? I'll tell you what I do. I doom scroll the heck out of Instagram and I will double fist Doritos like they are going out of style. I hit them like there's diamonds in the bottom of the bag. I don't want to face what God is trying to do. And just like this lady, what I do is I change the subject. We kind of harp on this lady for doing this, but she does what we would have done. Listen to her response when Jesus says, you don't live, uh, the guy you're living with now is not even your husband. She says, I understand that you must be some sort of prophet. So tell me, where do I worship? Question, smarty pants. Where do I worship? Because the Jews say we have to worship over here. The Samaritans say it's cool to worship over here. Where I worship? I did, uh, I was in youth ministry. I was in Young Life for uh, way too long, a really long time. Um, and high schoolers are kind of notorious for this. I know that Taylor Kelly, who's our executive director for youth, is, uh, he's over here. Uh, you can ask him about this. High schoolers are notorious for this. They could have just wrapped their car around a tree and run away with eight pounds of fentanyl in their pocket, and you ask them, hey man, are you okay? And they would still be like, hey, what does Jesus think about masks? What does Jesus think about, what, what, what about the election machines? What does Jesus think about that? Um, changing the question, that's what we always do. We want to deflect. We, we want to be seen, but we also know that it's terrifying when someone sees us. This is what shame does. Shame lives in that damp, dark cave and pops its head up constantly. It's like this cruel game of whack-a-mole where we think we have it figured out, and then it pops up over here. And then it's like, oh, your dad doesn't love you. Oh, remember you said that terrible joke in the cafeteria? Oh, now you're in East and you're wearing a funny shirt. What are you doing? Shame does this, this whack-a-mole game where it pops up over here and over there, and it wraps, uh, it wraps its kind of icy, cold hands around the throats of our desires, and it chokes them out. This is what shame always does. It suffocates 
what we think we want for ourselves, what we think even that the Lord wants, because the message of the garden still rings true in our hearts. That when the serpent uh, went to Eve and tempted her, the serpent said to Eve, God's holding out on you. Did God really say that you'd die if you ate that fruit? Was he just like, was that like hyperbole? Did he really say this? He must be holding out on you. He must not really show himself to you fully. This is what shame does when we think of how we are going to interact with God. Look at the life of this lady. Think of her shame. Think of her desires. You want to be loved? You can't even find a man to love you. You're just burning through them like cigarettes. You can't find someone who's going to love you. You can get some water, lady. You can drink a Nalgene full, but there's not enough water in the Pacific Ocean to wash away the, the, the crap that you've done. This is what shame does. This is the voice of shame. And still yet, as with all of God's stories, there's always a sliver of hope. And this lady knows it. Because what she says, when Jesus won't answer her question about worshiping, what she says is, I know there's a Messiah coming, and he's going to figure all this out. There's a Messiah coming who's going to answer my worship questions, but look, y'all are smart. You know that this lady doesn't care about where to worship. That's not what she wants the Messiah to come and do. That's just what she's saying. She's heard the gossip. She might not be a Jew, but she's heard the gossip that there's a Messiah coming, one that will come back and bind up the brokenhearted. One that comes back and binds up and heals the brokenhearted's wounds. One who will give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, deaf and make folks walk again. That there's a Messiah coming who will undo the curse of sin, who will undo that message in the garden that God is holding out on us. A Messiah who will undo all that has been done to me. A Messiah who will come and look at me with pornless eyes and will touch me, not to get something from me, but to give life to me. There is a Messiah that is coming, and he will fix all this nonsense. This Messiah that Jacob, who gave us this well, believed in, and that that guy is coming, and when he gets here, then I'll know. Then I'll know. I'll know I wasn't a mistake. I'll know that my worth isn't in my body, but in who Jesus says I am. I know that this Messiah is coming. And Jesus looks at her, and picture this with me. Jesus looks at her, and he says to her, I'm him. He's right in front of you. Jesus didn't say this to Nicodemus, right? The chapter before, old Nicky is standing there, and he's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Hey, I've heard all these stories. Jesus doesn't tell him, I'm the Messiah. Jesus doesn't say it to his own disciples yet. The first person in the New Testament that Jesus comes and says, I am the one who's going to come and fix everything that's broken is to a Samaritan woman who is down on her luck, who's been sexually abused, who's likely been trafficked, who's been cast outside, who's been told she's a whore, that there is a person in Scripture that Jesus comes to and he says, I'm coming for you. That's the freedom that I'm bringing. You don't have to worry about your worship questions anymore. You don't have to worry about the water anymore because I'm the one, I'm right in front of you. 
It's going to bring us to our last point, um, the depth of our freedom. Look again with me at verses 28 and 29 here. Um, what John says is that this lady, when Jesus tells her this, when Jesus says, go and be free, when he tells her this, she leaves her water jars there and she goes into town saying to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Jesus had walked into her place of deepest shame and he poured her a glass of water. Jesus walked into the place of her deepest shame and he looked around and he said, this is nothing. This is nothing. It's actually far worse than this. Jesus walked into her shame and he walked out on the other side. Her shame did not kill her. Her shame didn't put her to death because her shame was going to kill him. And her shame was going to put him to death. This is the scandal of forgiveness. This is why forgiveness is so hard because Jesus doesn't ignore shame. Jesus becomes shame. He became shame for you and for me and for this lady so that we could become like him, so that we could become free. Look at her. Look at what John wants us to see here. She had left her water jar. Suddenly the thing that she longed for gave way to her heart's truest desire, which is freedom. Freedom in the Messiah, freedom in Christ. She could face the city again. She could face the Savior. And she runs into the city and says, y'all, there's a man over here, and he just told me everything I ever did. He told me everything I've ever done. And he didn't run away from me. And that's the gospel. That's good news. That's the best news. Jesus knows everything about you, and he doesn't run away. See, Jesus is the ultimate non-anxious presence. Jesus doesn't spook easily. Jesus doesn't get scared. Jesus doesn't run from your shame, even when you think he should. And even that word should, right? We should all over ourselves. The word should is the language of shame. But deep down you know this. Deep down you know, Jesus, you're going to run away. Look at all the stuff I've done. Look at my heart. Look how dirty it is. And Jesus says, bet me. Bet, as the kids say. Bet. Risk. Be willing to risk like the Samaritan woman that I could march into the locked doors of your heart with the battering ram of my grace and scare away all the wraths of shame that are living in the basement of your heart because that's what I do. Remember this morning that mercy triumphs over judgment. Shame wants to bring judgment. Mercy comes in and says, get out of here. That when justice and mercy are on a collision course with one another, that when judgment is coming at you like a Mack truck on I-24, it swerves in the face of mercy. There's only one place on this entire planet where justice and mercy played chicken and justice didn't move, and that was on the cross of Christ. That was on the cross of Calvary. That's the only place and the only time in history that mercy and justice collided, and Jesus was in the middle taking the hit. It wasn't you, and it wasn't me, and it wasn't this lady. It was Jesus. Jesus was the one that was on that cross. 
It was Jesus who took the hit. It was Jesus who bled and died. It was Jesus who, in his final minutes, with his dying breath, would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It was Jesus who looked at the criminal on the cross next to him and didn't punch him in the face, but said, you're going to be with me in paradise. It was Jesus who turned his eyes to heaven and asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was Jesus who was met with silence at that question. The lonely, haunting echo of the silence of God, Andrew Peterson says, is the scariest non-noise in the universe. And Jesus was met with it. That the silence of God rang out in that moment because he had to be forsaken. And here's the thing. Jesus had to be forsaken so that you would never have to know what that feels like. You'll never have to know what that feels like because Jesus was forsaken. You can now be free and shame doesn't have to be what drives your life anymore. Could we risk believing that? Could we risk on this Sunday morning where it's cold as snot outside, but it's about to be hot because Tennessee's weird. Could we risk on this morning that Jesus loves you like that? Is there room in your spiritual DNA for a Jesus who loves you that way? Who looks at the shame and says, this is nothing. This is nothing. I know it impacted you and I know it's hurtful, but I promise you it will not kill you. It will not take you down. Could we risk believing that that Jesus exists, and then see if that Jesus doesn't blow the doors off this place. See if that Jesus doesn't fill this room ten times over. See if that Jesus doesn't bring people in who hear the vision that Brent has for this part of the city that says, I want everyone to come and see this Jesus. Because what they want out there, what the city wants, what your workplace wants, what your family needs, is to know that there's a Jesus who loves them this way who knows everything about us but does not run away, see who will come and flock here on a Sunday morning if we believe that Jesus really does that. You're not going to have enough backyard for straight chilling. I'll tell you that, if Jesus comes and Jesus is who he says he is, you're going to need a lot more pizza and you're going to need a lot more beach chairs. See if Jesus doesn't come and do something in this congregation and in this city that we cannot even understand. Because we don't understand why he loves us the way he does. We just have to believe it's true. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Let's pray together. Jesus, even now, there's so much shame that's welling up in my own heart. The devil asking me, do I really believe what I just said? Do I really believe what you just said? Uh, Lord, would you vanquish those voices? Would you allow our hearts uh, to be undone by the mercy that flows from your seat? Would you allow our hearts to experience the happiness and the gladness and the joy uh, that your Trinity experiences every moment of ever? Jesus, allow us to feel that, even if for a moment. Uh, as we join our voices together and sing out in response uh, to what you have said to us this morning, uh, Lord, banish our shames to the pit of hell. Awaken our desires. Let us see you as beautiful. Let us see you as believable. Let us see you as the one who loves us even when we don't love ourselves, who loves us even in spite of ourselves. 
Jesus, would you be so kind to do this for us? Spirit, would you be so kind as to move us uh, in such a way? God the Father, would you be so kind as to receive us? Broken, poor, weary, and tired, uh, you are the one who loves us. So Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.